0: So in customer service and customer experience, you always think of in customer service specifically, right? You get the people that are fired up. They are, they are ready to, to rip that customer service representative a new one, right? And you're saying, how do I get them to calm down and maybe not match that voice or their cadence but slow down the conversation to get them to trust you. Once they trust you, then you can start solving their problem.
1: You touch on something that is so misunderstood because there's a lot of training out there that says match their cadence and then they'll feel that you're like and then start taking your voice down. And people go like, holy holy mackerel, holy mackerel, you know, that worked. Well, it worked in spite of the first part. What really worked was when you started to take your voice down. That's when it came down. <laughs> there wasn't this bonding moment while they were melting down, so you should melt down simultaneously. You know, they didn't go like, "Holy cow, I'm melting down. He's melting down. We must be alike. I'm willing to follow his lead." No, 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 no.
0: I feel that so was much all better now. Time.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, th- yeah. Thank God you're as out of control as I am. You know, that's just that's nonsense. Yeah, But people miss it because of when the mechanism went into gear was when you started to take your voice down. Uh, they say like, wow, you know, that worked. Um, yeah, it worked, but you, you you know, it, it was delayed because you screwed up the first part.
0: Yeah, it could have worked a lot quicker if you would have been a buffoon at the beginning.
1: <laughs> exactly, yeah.
0: So in the book, you talked about, listening is the cheapest yet most important concession. Can you explain that? It doesn't cost you anything to listen. And listening
1: is not simply not talking, waiting for your turn. You know, a lot of people misconstrue silence as listening when they're really waiting for their turn. You know, listening is actually hearing what other people say. Tactical empathy is a demonstration of understanding. And you don't demonstrate your understanding by saying, I understand. You know, you you listen, you dial in, you use one of the Black Swan tools, probably a label. It seems like, it sounds like, it looks like. Or if you if your game is stepped up to the next level based on our training, you can adjust that slightly. But a hostage negotiator is going to say right off the bat, you you know, sound upset. You sound like I want to get out of here, get out of there. You you sound like. Sounds like the day is not going as you planned it. You know, that's uh, dialing into showing, demonstrating an understanding of the dynamic.
0: And what is the importance about labeling those fears? Ah, so
1: completely counterintuitive. Labeling fears diffuses them. And we're much more into neuroscience these days with tactical empathy, the application of empathy with the tactical understanding from neuroscience. Neuroscience has shown us really clearly through experiments, and a bunch of people have done these. The first time I ran across the experiment was in a book called The Upward Spiral, where they put people in fMRIs, functional magnetic resonance imaging equipment where you could, they could watch the electrical flow of thoughts in the brain, it lights up like electricity. They show people um, a picture that induces a negative thought, you know, it could be a puppy in the rain, could be a baby seal, could you know, make you know, who knows, it doesn't matter, you know, it could be a little old lady all by herself looking lonely. All they know is that it induces negative thoughts, the person sees a picture, the appropriate Areas of the brain that pre-identified as where essentially negative emotions are amplified, lights up, the amygdala. And then they simply ask the people, what are you feeling? Which is a self-label. And every time the people would self-label, simply call the negative emotion out, the electrical activity would diminish. Now, there's two important things there to remember. First of all, it happened every time. Secondly, the degree of impact was not always the same. You can label a negative emotion with someone and it might look like it had no effect. You know, they may continue to stare at you. Well, it had an impact. It just wasn't as much as you hoped for. Sometimes you label negative emotions and and you watch the person completely relax. Or, you know, my son Brandon's got a great story where he was standing in front of a judge who was upset with him in a courtroom. Remember, you don't get in life what's fair, you get what you negotiate. If you want to become a better negotiator, click the link in the description below. And, you know, he did what we refer to in a black swan method as an accusations audit, which is taking a scientific wild ass guess, a swag, and all the negative emotions that somebody's feeling, and calling them all out. I mean, going for it, firing every cannonball you have. And he's and as he's doing that. He says she just kind of starts to, she just starts to twitch, <laughs> and you know uh, because the electrical activity in her amygdala is just like bang, 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 completely changing in an instant. And and she she looked at him. And he ends up walking out of the courtroom, having to go attend uh, a course. When walking in, he was facing a steep fine for the driving violation and potential jail time. And and he didn't walk in with a clean record. You know, very few 20-somethings do not have heavy feet. I had a heavy foot when I was in my 20s. You know, we're all race car drivers. We all think we're driving a NASCAR, male and female, until you hit the age of about 25, which is where everybody's automobile insurance drops, because neurologically, that's when our brains pretty much finish forming. But, you know, 18 to 25, most of us don't even know there's a brake pedal on a car. So <laughs> <laughs> there's a, There's an e-brake. Yeah. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You know, uh, he was no different than anybody else. He just happened to get caught. So, but, and, and so he was facing stiff penalties and he got nothing based on deactivating the negatives in the judge's brain. And he watched the electrical activity diminish by simply by calling him out, not denying it, you know, among the things he said was he, he didn't say, I don't want you to think I'm a stupid undisciplined kid. He said, I know I look like a stupid, undisciplined kid, the two hmm. millimeter shift. Cause you know, you're going to stay in front of a judge or anybody else. And you're going to say to yourself, what do I want them to not think? Yeah. I don't want you to think I'm a stupid undisciplined kid. The two millimeter shift on this neurologically sound approach in tactical empathy is to say, I'm sure I do look this way and you can just watch that stuff deactivate
0: the point though is that he didn't say he was he now you catch I'm on. sure there's a yes. lot to that
1: the you know, the tiny little distinctions that almost everybody gets wrong with empathy understanding is not agreement demonstrating an understanding is not agreeing that it's true and in today's vernacular Everybody thinks that empathy and sympathy are synonymous. It is not. It never was. A writer that I admire greatly, Stephen Kotler, said, empathy is a transmission of information. Sympathy is a reaction to the transmission. It's a great way to think about it. Transmitting information is not disagreement or agreement. I'm sure I look like a stupid kid. That's the transmission of information. And
0: as you very accurately point out, not an agreement. Tell me about the the power of an open-ended question.
1: You know, the the real uh, application of an open-ended question is get people to think. It's not to get an answer. Now, it's an okay mechanism to get an answer. You know, like, what's the biggest challenge you face? If the person has enough gas in their mental tank, they can answer that question. You got to catch them in the morning while they're on their first cup of coffee. There's a a whole bunch of neuroscience reasons why you cannot get a good answer to that question probably after 11 o'clock in the morning, for sure after one o'clock in the afternoon, circadian rhythm, decision fatigue, a whole bunch of things. On the other hand. You can ask that question at any time if you want them to stop and think. Daniel Kahneman would call that slow thinking, in-depth critical thinking. The classic, that question, stop me in my tracks. You know, that's a physical manifestation of the power of a great open-ended question. Stop them dead in their tracks. And And if you choose those, you want it to start with either the word what or the word how and stay away from any other open-ended question.
0: One of the open-ended questions that I love that you say is how am I supposed to do that? Yeah, And you use that as an FBI hostage negotiator, and you use that in the black Swan group training. And what is the the power behind that is it, it puts them back in their seat, right? Where they have to help you make that decision.
1: Yeah, you know, and you're absolutely right on how it's one of the critical things in a black swan method. Um, And as I said before, stop you in your tracks question. Stop them dead in their tracks. And how am I supposed to do that hits on a lot of levels. You know, um, we refer to it on our team as forced empathy. Stop them in their tracks. Force them to take a look at you. Again, the issue is not the answer. Now, nine times out of 10, their answer is going to be something that you love. And uh, the good news, bad news about this technique, like it's only one thing that we teach in our company. But it is so powerful. And in and of itself, it can make such a massive difference in people's lives that sometimes that's the only thing that they learn. Because they're like, bang, you're in a different world as soon as you learn that. You got the other side cutting their price in half. You got the other side, you know, just massively changing their position based on the strength of that one single black swan method. And then, and then, and then the one time out of 10, it's so effective that you're used to hitting grand, not just home runs, but grand slam home runs. The one time, you know, you miss people just like, holy cow, ah, I, I I don't know what to do. I, you know, I got that from somebody the other day. She said, I used, to, how am I supposed to do that? And it didn't work now that, that tells me so much. Number one, she was so flummoxed by it, not working. She was used to it working ridiculously, like a magic spell. Like she'd been to Hogwarts and been taught the Patronus <laughs> charm, you know, and And so I said, well, no, it's not that it didn't work. It's that you're so used to getting a different result, you misinterpreted the the data that you got back. Out of one time in 10, by the way, nine out of 10 successes is higher than anything else that anybody else is using. But the one time in 10, the person's going to come back with, that's your problem, or if you want the deal, you do it, which is to immediately put it right back on you. And she called, she said, well, that was a failure. Well, no, it's not a failure. What it just told you is you're dealing with someone who's not collaborative. Now that made you smarter, wondering, going from wondering if they weren't collaborative to knowing, at least on this point, it also tells you as a negotiator, your job so that you don't leave money on the table is to find the limits and with that application of the black swan method you just found the limit without driving the other side from the table because under all other circumstances when you push somebody to the limit the gauges when they start to melt down you know when i a long time ago i wrote read herb cohen's book you can negotiate anything You know, if you're into reading the literature of negotiation, everybody that I know read this book. It's probably their first negotiation book. Herb told people, push them till they're genuinely angry, (laughs) genuinely angry, because that's when you know they're at their limit. There is always a toxic residue from genuine anger. And I remember doing that. I remember thinking like, well, cool. You know, I'm going to continue to pound this guy until he's angry until they pound the table and they go, cause that would hurt me. That would cost me. I would lose money. And you know, Herb's instruction was like, awesome. You you just found the limit. You did your job. Where we are here is find a limit without inducing that sort of anger, which is radioactive toxic waste which is not what you need for long-term successful relationships. So that, you know, that's the other thing, the misinterpretation of the data. How do you not leave money on the table? You push the other side till they say, because if you want the deal, you're going to do it. And you go like, awesome. I just did my job.
0: Yeah. There is a ton in there too. Like, how do I continue to push somebody to that limit by still gaining their, approval or trust along the way and building that relationship because there's there's a fine line between that of pushing them to that frustration point to saying hey i still like you i still love your service i still love the product i still uh appreciate you but here's our limit
1: yeah and and you you hit on a really important point in that long-term relationships are how you get wealthy